Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 32. I'm Gumby. I'm Teresa. And we are here in Durham, North Carolina. Um, let's see, what's going on in our world we, right now? We have a guest. Yeah, so we, to celebrate this podcast, we have a little fire going in our hobo stove on this <laughs> chilly, cloudy day. Um, we have, what, eight days left of the Whole30 diet? Yeah. And man, I can't wait for that beer. So, oh, God, if, uh, yeah, <laughs> borderline homicidal, but almost there. Um, is there anything else you want to share before we get into this podcast? Oh, we, uh, we found out a few days ago that the Silent Sam statue that had been the center of so much controversy on the UNC Chapel Hill campus here in North Carolina, right? down the street from where we live at, um, has been removed. It's been given back to the sons of Confederate veterans. It was actually given to the university by the daughters of the Confederacy. Um, but the students protested, and the statue is back with a, uh, a group, I suppose, that will um, give it a place to live. And so lucky for them, the university decided uh, to give to award the sons of the Confederate veterans, how much was it? Two point five million dollars of non-state funds. It's it's basically money that could be used for other things, but the university decided in a seven-minute uh, legal case um, where the sons of the Confederate veterans had not even brought a case to the university. The university was like, "Hey, we want to give you this money. Will you?" Um, Will you ask for it? And they're like, uh, sure. So they were awarded two and a half million dollars, and now they're going to build a headquarters. So <laughs> great job, students of UNC. Good job. Yeah, so that's what's happening out here. Um, and so this, the name of this episode is The Fire People, and of course we want to talk about fire. And I guess for me, any... Subject that has to do with fire has to start with the sun. Um, the sun, they say, by our, our scientists tell us, is 4.603 million years ago it was created. Um, or not created, but uh, born, however you want to say that. But it's, it's over 4 billion years old. Um, the sun's composed mostly of hydrogen and, and helium, or exclusively, rather, and it works through nuclear fusion. Um, the sun's in this weird state that's called plasma. So we have liquid and solid and gas here on Earth. Um, but every now and then you run into this fourth thing that's plasma. So the sun, you know, people call it the gaseous giant. It's not exactly gas. Um, You're the, the gaseous giant. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> um, it is so huge that 1,300,000 Earths could fit into it. And because of its, its mass, um, it is said to warp space-time. So I remember when I first read that, 
I was like, what the hell does that mean? And I still don't know what that means. And I don't think a physicist really know what that means either. But uh, I just want to impress upon you the power of this thing that we take for granted every day. The sun that sits out there that is that huge and is so big that it warps the space-time around it. You know, it's sitting out there in the cold vastness of space. And for all practical purposes, if you think of something floating, there's got to be a substance for it to float in, like water or air. But out there, um, it's just space. It's not floating. It's actually falling. But what does falling mean when you get rid of the ideas of up and down? You know, there's no gravity for the sun to be going around other than the gravity of the Milky Way itself. And when you have a body so big as the sun that warps space-time, the planets are actually falling, free-falling around it. But because it's warping space-time itself, they fall in a circle. Just like I've heard it compared to if you have a marble and you have a heavy weight on a bed and it bends the mattress and you thump the marble like nearby where that bend is, it'll curve. So that's kind of what we call gravity. Um, and I find that fascinating. And I'm throwing these facts out there just because, you know, as, as people who listen to this podcast know, I'm no great fan of science. But um, some of these thoughts I find add to my wonder of the, the majesty, the, the awe of this star we call Sol, our own, Sol, our own star, the sun. Um, the Earth is said to be 4. Point, I don't think it's 543, maybe 543 billion years old. Um, and other than the hydrogen, hydrogen and helium in our own sun, all these other elements that we have that make up um, everything, everything on the elemental table, everything we've ever encountered is supposedly composed of some combination of these elements, also come from stars. We are the great-great-grandchildren of these ancient ancestors, the star people. And I remember when I first encountered that idea many, many years ago, I just found that to be such a beautiful thought. Um, so when we talk about our ancestors, we're also talking about those distant stars out there. When they're massive enough, um, when they're big enough and they explode and implode and do all these like huge monumental things the star people do, they create other elements other than just the hydrogen and helium of our sun. And they float through space, and they coalesce, and here we are on Earth with all these different elements. And who knows what kind of elements didn't make it to Earth that are out there on some other planet. Um, the Earth is eight light minutes away from the sun. So the Earth formed right in the sweet spot. You know, like in ecology, we talk about transition areas. You know, if you get too close to something, some things can live there. If you get too far from something, some things can live there. But... When you're right in the middle in the overlap, that's kind of the, the fruitful spot where the most things live. So all this fire that we experience on our planet comes from the sun that's eight light minutes away. And when we say eight light minutes, that means the light from the sun, everything from the sun, the heat, the light, everything, takes at least eight minutes to reach the earth. Now, the implications of that are profound. You know, I might say that and you're like, oh, yeah, that's neat, eight light minutes. But if the sun completely vanished right now, gone just got sucked into a black hole. For eight minutes, we wouldn't know it. For eight minutes, we'd still see the sun. We'd still feel the heat. We would not, that would not be part of our reality. And the implications of that are profound. Um, one of the things I loved about reading Einstein when I was younger 
was he would take these ideas and then roll with the implications. He called them Gedanken experiments, where he would just imagine himself riding on a beam of light and what would be the implications of what we know about light. And um, in physics, they, they describe the cone of time, that time actually has a sometimes somewhat of a shape. A, uh, it doesn't work the way we think it does here in our, our tiny little planet here of Earth, where, where time moves incrementally and space moves incrementally. Um, it moves on these vast scales. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around without getting into math, and then the math gets so abstract we still don't really understand it. The math just kind of under uh, describes it pretty well. So eight light minutes means that, in a way, the sun exists in a different reality than we do. Eight light minutes in our past. Um, and I don't know. I don't want to get carried away with that. I just find that really fascinating. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what that means, this cone of time that actually the sun that I'm so familiar with is never in my present. It's actually in a, a different realm of time. Um, and Teresa, I can take over uh, Karen for our little fire if you want to <laughs> take it from there. Well, Gumby's been talking a lot about how light and, and fire exist outside of the earth. But then you start to think about, well, then, you know, how how is it on earth that we have fire? And we'll talk a lot more about that. But I just thought it was fascinating the, the way that the land masses were made and the volcanic eruptions that produced small fires and large explosions of fiery rock and liquid rock and how that must have looked on the landscape of the earth. Sometimes when we have a big fire and afterwards we scatter the coals, I imagine that was like a, a little tiny way of what the earth might have looked like with all these burning embers and fires popping up here and there. And let's see. Oh, meteorites. If you've ever seen uh, like a shooting star, I actually saw one in uh where I used to live at, I was standing outside and I saw this rock on fire in the sky. And it actually went out um, very near where I lived at. And then I heard it like go punk. And I swear to God, there was an apartment complex right behind me. I swear to God, it went right into the dumpster. <laughs> so maybe it was good that it went out before it got in the dumpster and maybe caught everything on fire. Yeah, and so we're talking about the, the history of fire as we know it, you know, starting out there with the sun. And another thing I like to think about the sun is this nuclear fusion. The sun is sort of a huge nuclear explosion. And on our planet, an explosion dissipates. It goes boom, and it spreads, and then it, it, it goes out. But when you have the forces of gravity, the bending of space-time on the scale that the sun does, that it's bent that much space-time, it has this force on it that wants to crush it, that's pushing in on it. So for over four billion years, the sun's sitting out there, this huge giant, and one of the forces is pushing out. It's exploding. It's throwing this radiation and this heat and this light while another force is pushing against it. It's trying to crush it. It wants to just smash it down because of its own mass, its own weight. Um, and I just find that fascinating that fire originates there, travels that eight light minutes, comes to Earth. And as the Earth is forming, we have all this volcanic activity. Uh, the magma is a way that the Earth starts using, has used the sun's energy um, 
and the revolution of the magma inside the Earth is creating this magnetic field that protects us somewhat for the radiation of the sun. Um, if that stopped, we would have too much radiation. Life, so they say, couldn't exist. And then we have these flashes of lightning mm-hmm. that are six times, oh, a little ladybug, that are said to be, they can be as hot as six times as hot as the sun. And the sun, by the way, I think I overlooked this part, is 9,941 degrees. So these flashes of lightning can be 53,540 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. That's hot. (laughs) So, you know, I think about how fire has, you know, just from the fact that we revolve around it, the fact that it is out there in the center of our solar system, the heart of our solar system, um, and then how it shaped the Earth with the, the volcanic activity, the lightning, and there used to be a lot more debris in our solar system, in the early solar system, the young solar system, as it's floating around and coalescing into planets. So we were getting smacked along with every other planet with all these fiery meteorites hurling into the Earth. A um, couple of the things that fire gave us, you know, the the volcanic activity is releasing this gas into, you know, the early atmosphere um, and composing that. And life somehow began to evolve from that, what we call life. Um, from the animus perspective, it's all been life. There's never been anything but life. Um, yeah. Ooh, yeah, I was just thinking about how the... Um the liquid rock would start to grow and form and change, and it's still changing, so it very much is alive. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in there. (laughs) We're jumping back and forth to feed this fire. So, yeah, um, one of the earliest forms of life was blue-green algae, along with uh, some simple funguses. So we got this blue-green algae was such a successful form of life that it still exists pretty much unchanged. It has no true nucleus. Um, Just kind of floating on the water out there, and using the sun's energy. The sun is just bathed in energy. So this was the basis of all life, the the solar energy that the blue-green algae began to utilize, to grow. Um, And then the ocean took off with life in all kinds of different forms and shapes. You know, they they described that they believe the first um, communities of cells, when they started working together, were these big blobs, these amorphous blobs that were in the ocean. And in the ocean, we see the birth of sex, another way to change, to exchange DNA, to uh, continue diversity. We see predatory um, evolution, where one life form, for the first time, evolves to eat another life form, to steal its energy, its solar energy, because it's all solar energy. We don't eat anything but the sun. Um, With the fire, we are fire eaters. We're all fire creatures on this planet. And another thing the sun gives us with its radiation is mutation. So constantly there's exceptions being born, exceptions being created, grown, hatched. Um, So every now and then something does something it's never done before. And most of the time it doesn't work. Um, It's a debility. But since we're on a changing planet and constantly new factors, sometimes a mutation fits the new thing better than the what worked before. So the mutation becomes the new norm. So I just want to follow a little bit the plant evolution because this comes into play later when we talk more about fire. So the blue-green algae, it was said it was out there for quite a long time, forming the basis of this food chain of, you know, um, life getting more complex, more what we're familiar with. And it was said that somewhere along the way, and of course, 
big extrapolation here. The blue-green algae somehow mixed with fungus in such a way that the right mutations were there, and instead of that dying as it washed up on the land, it managed to work together into a symbiotic relationship, and we call that relationship lichen. And it was said that lichen was the first life to start colonizing the land. Picture that earth, volcanoes. But for the most part, if you're not near an active volcano, all you hear is wind. There's no leaves rustling. There's no, no life on the land, no bird song. Vast expanses of ground. And maybe if you're near the ocean, the waves, maybe the rain, pitter-patters. Um, but a quiet, quiet earth. Things moving really slow. And this lichen first starts moving slowly up, covering rocks, little funguses, probably nothing as complex as a mushroom, maybe molds. That's about all you see. That's the first life. This symbiotic relationship allowed plants to get their first foothold on the land. And from there, um, plants evolved, mutated in other words, into non-vascular life forms, moss. Now, I love picturing the earth at this stage. You're walking along, maybe there's just dirt, and you come to, as far as you can see, a prairie of moss. I mean, what a gorgeous place that would be. Now, the atmosphere probably wouldn't be uh, suitable for me to breathe and witness it at that time, but I'm just fascinated with the beauty of this place. You know, still the wind, you might hear it going through the rocks, but no trees, no leaves. And the moss eventually becomes club moss. This is the first vascular system. Plants, for the first time, begin reaching for the sky. The competition for the sun, for fire, has begun. This was the first competition for fire. Um, now, suddenly, the beginning of being able to overshadow your neighbors in the plant kingdom has begun. Reaching for that source of energy, uh, that huge ball of fire, eight light minutes away, everything you can grasp of it. And you can get too much of it, too. So plants began to evolve ways to not have too much solar energy. In other words, sometimes plants would favor places that were in the shadows, so they could just get a little bit of daylight. Um, and that evolved into the first vascular plants, like ferns. The first forest were giant ferns and horsetails. And by the way, there were no flowers back then. They spread like mushrooms do through spores. Spores are a pretty ineffective way to spread compared to seeds, but obviously it worked because we still have mushrooms and ferns and things like that, club mosses, moss itself. All these spread through spores, and you make millions and millions of spores in the off chance that one will land in the right place and renew its, its life cycle, become a new life form of that kind. Um, so here's our first forest, and for the first time, the wind is whipping through leaves, <laughs> ferns, giant forest of ferns, and now the first of our ancestors, our direct ancestors, because we all share common ancestors, that we might call animals, the amphibians, and then soon followed by the insects come onto the land, start spreading over these huge primeval forests of ferns. And from the ferns, through mutations, slow evolution, through changes in the land, um, then we come to the conifers. Pine trees are representatives of that, all the conifers. Um, primitive seeds that are no longer spores, but they're protected in these dinosaur-like scaly um, egg cases. They almost look like something from the dinosaur age when you think about a pine cone. And then from the conifers... We have the highly evolved flowers. The most highly evolved flowers are the asters, um, which can have like hundreds of flowers on one flower head. And um, now we start having a real like um, 
supercharged reciprocal relationship where these flying insects are, are evolving to live off of these plants. These plants are evolving to spread through the flying insects through pollination. Um, and so with all this ev- evolution um, and all these changes, now we have this, this diverse world where we all rely on the, the plants. And the plants are the bottom of this food pyramid. A lot of us studied the food pyramid in high school, or I didn't really pay attention in high school. I studied it afterward on my own. But the basis of the food pyramid is sun. We are all eaters of the sun. We are all creatures of the sun. We are all extensions of the sun is another way to look at it. And the plants are our ambassadors. We owe everything to the plant people, and we still do. If all the plant people were suddenly gone, we can't turn that solar energy into food anymore. And we eat solar energy. So... That is their power. That's one of their many gifts they bring us. And with that, I'll hand it over to Teresa for some quantum physics, which oh, is, happens to be her specialty. No, 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 no. Don't, do, don't go away. Don't go away. I, Gumby just recently showed me this video by Richard Feynman, and we'll post it on the Escaping Society Facebook page. But this guy, he is a quantum physicist, Gumby? Uh, I believe so. He worked on the Manhattan Project. Yeah, well, he worked on the Manhattan Project, so he knows a thing or two, I reckon. Um, He beautifully describes the reaction it takes to to have fire come into existence, to to bear a fire into existence. And Gumby, I was going to pass that on to you to to talk about. I want to hear you take a shot at it. No, because I don't... Come on, I want to hear it. Oh, no. I really... I really liked how Gumby grasped the video because I just kind of got stuck at jiggling. There's a lot of jiggling that happens. Um, all right. I don't, man, this is going to suck, Gumby. Uh. Well, as intrigued as I am by the term, it's going to suck Gumby. Um, <laughs> so basically, Richard Feynman, he's a lot of fun to watch. And like Teresa said, Google Richard Feynman, F E Y. N M A I whoop, let me try that again. F E Y N as in noodle, M as in Margaret, A N fire. And you'll see this video, and the guy's just a, a trip to watch. Um, he talks like kind of a quirky uncle or something, and he obviously loves his, uh, his subject. But he describes how carbon and oxygen want to be together. Like, they really lock into each other. They want to spend time together, and we call this carbon dioxide. And our atmosphere is full of it. When a plant grows, um, oh, and he just says that, but it repels it unless enough force pushes the oxygen into the carbon to uh, come together again. He describes it like a big hill, like a volcano, you might say. And you've got a ball, and you roll it up the hill, and... um, at first, you know, it just rolls back down. You have to send it with enough force and speed to make it into the, the hole at the top. And then it locks in. You know, it's like it belongs there. He says oxygen kind of reacts the same way with carbon. And we're all carbon-based life formed. If, you, if you've watched much Star Trek, you hear this over and over. Oh, the carbon-based life form. And apparent, uh, occasionally they run into something from some other part of the universe that's not, and it's really a big deal. But everything we know is carbon-based. So when a plant grows... It's actually taking its substance, its mass, out of the air. It's pulling the carbon dioxide, and it uses the sunlight to split the oxygen from the carbon. And so we have a tree that's mostly composed of carbon. So you might think the tree is growing up from the ground, but 
atomically, that's not what's happening. It's pulling its substance from the air itself um, by intaking this carbon dioxide, which just becomes carbon. And then as a byproduct, product, it releases the oxygen, um, just as kind of a useless thing it doesn't need anymore. <laughs> so we've evolved um, in one of the many ways that we're sort of secondary or tertiary to these plants, just another step away from the source of the sun um, to utilize this oxygen. This is where we start getting the atmosphere that we're familiar with that enabled us, um, the mammals and many other creatures, to really thrive and spread and evolve and diversify and become everything that we know. Um, and what's relevant to this podcast in particular, and the plants we are going to come back into uh, to play with this story that we're trying to tell here in a very clumsy way. <laughs> but if we take this wood from a tree, it has stored the sunlight. You can think of a tree... One of the ways to look at it is as a battery of sun's energy. Mm. It has stored the sunlight. It's sitting in there, latent. You look at a tree and it doesn't look like a fire at all. But the power of the fire is within that tree, in that carbon. When you, what we call heat, is when atoms start jiggling. They start jiggling, jiggling, jiggling faster and faster with more intensity. Now, throughout all the tree's life, oxygen is coming into contact with the carbon, but gently. It just kind of bounces off. It doesn't know it wants to be with the carbon. They just kind of bump into each other and go their separate ways. When you start jiggling these oxygen molecules, the air gets hot and suddenly it hits a carbon mole or, or atom. Is it a molecule or atom? You're going to have to bear with me. I'm not a physicist, but the carbon thing, I'm a jiggy. <laughs> so it hits it hard enough and it locks in and suddenly it's carbon dioxide again. Now the wood, the tree, can't use this as carbon dioxide. It needs it as carbon for its substance. So as soon as it becomes carbon dioxide, it off-gasses it, lets it go. And we know that is smoke. It goes back into the atmosphere. And with the release of this undoing of it, what it is, this carbon dioxide, it also releases the sun's energy. And we call that fire. That's the jiggle, and it's a chain reaction. One carbon dioxide jiggles and bam, hits another um, oxygen atom or molecule that crashes into another carbon, and now they're locked in together, and they release. And before long, we have this chain reaction. If we keep adding wood, we have a fire that grows and grows. And um, you look like you're dying to say something there. Well, I wanted to say the, the one thing that I could possibly contribute to this before you say it, and that is that... The tree throughout its life is taking in, like we hear in layman's terms, the tree is kind of breathing in the carbon dioxide and breathing out oxygen. But what's interesting and relevant to fire is the fire breathes or takes in the oxygen, right, Gumby? And it releases carbon dioxide. Fire? Yeah, I believe so. So it's, it's kind of opposite, or it's like the circular pattern that's happening with the carbon coming out of the air and forming the tree, the carbon dioxide being taken out of the air and the oxygen released. And then when the tree dies and maybe, you know, we use it for firewood, that fire is breathing the oxygen or sucking it back in. That's all I had to say. Yeah. So <laughs> we had the very romantic idea of having a fire going during this podcast, but what this is looking like is uh, kind of us taking turns jumping back and forth to try to feed this fire, but it, it is very pleasant. Um, yeah, so 
I think that's a really interesting way to look at fire. And it actually changes the way I try to tend to fire when I think about that. The fire isn't necessarily just a big growing entity. It is also a chain reaction, a jiggle. Um, and I love the idea of how a plant is being undone and releasing this this energy, that you're actually in a very literal, um, scientific way, that when you sit around a fire, this little fire we have going in the hobo stove right now is, in fact, a piece of the sun. Now, you said it changes the way you tend the fire. How so? I'm curious. I really don't... I can't describe it. I just know that when I started thinking about it that way, it it, it changed the way I feed the fire. I don't know. It's hard to describe. I, it's, it's, it's the way I look at it. So we've been talking a lot about science, and this is not Teresa and my forte. So um, hopefully we've uh, shared some interesting facts, and our goal is not to educate you to the scientific cult of uh, the way to look at things, but to hopefully share some ideas that help inspire you and help see the awe and mystery that we see when we think about where fire comes from and the, the, the path it traveled to get here and the way the earth uh, relates to fire in the many forms, lightning, etc., and the way it, it, it evolved through these plants to come here to this wood that we just take for granted that, yeah, you throw some logs on the fire. It was a long journey, and uh, we've been traveling this journey together even before, you know, when we think of those ancient stars and the supernovas that are the elements that compose our bodies. Um, so I want to switch paradigms a little bit. Like, I find a lot of value in the ancient animus stories from the indigenous cultures. Um, there's always the danger that when we share something from an indigenous culture of appropriation. So I want to really try to give as much respect as I can to where this came from. This is a Lenny Lenape story. And this tribe um, lived and still do in what is now called New Jersey. Um, so I'm going to hope that this is a story that they feel okay with sharing because it's a widely known story, and I'm going to try to give it all the justice I can, and thank you so much for giving us this story. It's the story of Rainbow Crow, and I've told this story quite a bit at camps um, that I worked at. But it said that long ago, um, the earth began to get cold, and the snow began to fall, and it kept falling, and all the creatures on the earth at first, really loved it. It was this beautiful new thing and the novelty of it. They played in it. You know, they went running through it. It was just, wow, look at this. But the snow kept falling and it fell deeper and deeper. And before long, the little creatures got altogether buried in it. The big creatures could barely move. Well, Wise Owl spoke up and said, we need to do something. We need to, if this keeps falling, spirit snow, um, We'll be buried. We need to do something about spirit snow here. Um, maybe we can send an ambassador to the creator who creates by thinking what will be. Kijiamu Kaong. Well, Wise Owl couldn't go because Wise Owl can't see very well in the daylight. They thought about Coyote, but Coyote was always playing pranks and mischief, and just Coyote was easily distracted and couldn't be trusted. They thought about reliable old Turtle. If Turtle says he's going to do something, Turtle's going to do it. But Turtle's so slow, and the snow is falling fast. And that's when Rainbow Crow spoke up. 
A long time ago, Rainbow Crow had all the colors of the rainbow, plus some colors that don't exist anymore. They only existed in Rainbow Crow's plumage. Rainbow Crow had the most beautiful voice. It was a symphony of flutes. When Rainbow Crow sung, you'd stop what you were doing and listen. When Rainbow Crow flew over, you stopped what you were doing to watch. It was like uh, seeing a shooting star. Rainbow Crow stepped forward, and with so many gifts, so many gifts that Rainbow Crow had received, Rainbow Crow was more than willing to pay back, to make the sacrifice, make the trip to go to the Creator and to find a solution for the snow. So the animals all wished Rainbow Crow well as Rainbow Crow took off towards the sky, into the sky, flapping, flapping, went through the clouds. All those snowy fields and mountains grew smaller and smaller beneath him as he flapped through the icy clouds, over the clouds, and Rainbow Crow left the earth. Rainbow Crow flapped and flapped as the winds buffeted him and rocked him back and forth, but Rainbow Crow was determined. He was going to find something to help the animals, or he'd die trying. Rainbow Crow flew past the moon. He flew past the sun. He even flew past the most distant stars. And it took him three days until he reached the holy place, where the creator who creates by thinking, Kijiamu Kaong, what will be, lived. So Kijiamu Kaong was so busy thinking about things that will be, that when Rainbow Crow arrived, he didn't even notice him. He was thinking. Rainbow Crow began to sing his best song as loud and as beautifully as he could. And before long, Kijiamu Kaong noticed and looked down and said, Oh, thank you for that song. What can I give you in return, my friend? And Rainbow Crow said, Spirit snow and spirit ice are falling and, and, and we're in trouble. We're being buried. It's so cold down there. Can you unthink snow and ice? And Kijiamu Kaong said, I can't unthink them because they have spirits of their own. But here's what I will do. I will think of something that will help you. I will think of fire. And with that, Kijiamu Kaong grabbed a stick and put one end into the sun and it began to blaze. It began to smolder with the fire. He gave the cool end to Rainbow Crow and said, you must hurry as fast as you can. This will help the people. And by people, he meant all the non-human and human people of the earth. Well, Rainbow Crow was worried that it would go out, so he began to fly with a stick in his beak as fast as he could. He flapped and he flapped towards the earth. As he was going along the starway, the fire felt good. It was warming him. On the way up, it was cold and windy. He flapped and he flapped, but the fire was growing slowly bigger. By the time he passed the sun, the sun began to burn his tail, and the fire was growing bigger still. His wings, his, his feathers were getting charred black by the fire. By the time he passed the moon, he was completely black. He was the, the crow that we've seen today, the black crow. And by the time he plummeted into the Earth's atmosphere and through the clouds, the smoke had gum, gone into his throat and began to choke him. So that once beautiful voice turned into the harsh <gasps> that we hear today. Well, the animals looked up and it looked like a meteorite falling to the Earth. Fire! blazing, engulfing Rainbow Crow, and he crashed into the earth, and the animals ran over, and there it was. For the first time, Tinde, fire, had reached the earth. The animals rejoiced. They celebrated. They knew what fire ate, so they fed fire wood, and the fire got bigger. It melted the snow. They dug out all the little creatures, <coughs> and they were so happy. They celebrated all night. 
They were so happy they forgot about Rainbow Crow, who kept to himself. And even though he was happy that he'd accomplished his mission, he was sad because now his voice, his, his throat was harsh. His beautiful feathers were charred. And Rainbow Crow sat there, and then a wind came and gently touched his face. And we looked up. There is Kichiamu Ka'ong, the creator who creates by thinking what will be. He walked up to Rainbow Crow, and he said, You have done such a selfless act, but don't worry. I've remembered you, and I will give you gifts to compensate for the sacrifice you've made. I can't take away your black feathers and your harsh voice. You've made a choice, and so you carry the responsibility of that choice. But I will make your meat taste like smoke, so not many people will want to eat it. You will be protected by many predators. Your voice will be harsh, and so when the people begin to use fire, the fire will make them powerful, and sometimes they will lose their way and abuse this power, but you will be protected. Um, They will not want to keep you in a cage because you will not be what to their eyes looks at face value beautiful. Your ways will be draped in mystery. As soon as the people figure out, think they know something about Crow, you will do something different. You will forever be a trickster. Um, Mystery will protect you. And finally, as one last gift, Kijiamu Ka'ong raised his hand and all the colors that Rainbow Crow used to have were put back into his feathers, but hidden. So it's said that if a child is walking along a beach on a sunny day and he finds a crow feather, and if he has the wisdom and curiosity to hold it up and spend some time with it and look at it, he will see all those colors still in Rainbow Crow's feathers, or crow as we now call him. And it's said that that's the way it is today. So when the Lenny Lenape encountered a crow, they were encouraged to be reminded of how thankful they are for fire, that there was a time that fire was not here, and to remember all the things that fire does to them, for them, and to thank Crow for the gift that so long ago Crow shared. Now, I love that story in particular, but there's so many fire creation stories, and some of them have to do with Squirrel carrying the fire in his tail, um, which became Possum's tail, uh, Spider carrying the fire on his back, um, there's one I really like about Turkey Vulture with the, the ember and his beautiful plumed head no. that burned his head to the, the head we see now. And now he still circles the sun, remembering his relationship with fire. Mm. But I love all these stories because they, they deepen our relationship with the natural world. You don't have to believe that Crow actually used to have rainbow feathers and flew to the sun. Although, why not? Maybe he did. But even if you just think about the story, it brings you into a deeper relationship with Crow because of the gratitude. So I just wanted to share that as a another way to look at our history of fire, of where fire came from. Mm-hmm. I really like that story, too. <clears throat> so Gumby has often said, and I think he'll talk more about this, that um, our whole culture and, and everything that has to do with, with us as a people, we are the fire people. Now, he's, ha- he's written down some, I guess, some facts here, so I'll go ahead and read those off. So, one and a half million years ago, savanna prevailed over forest in the cooler, drier climate, and that created more intense fires. And our ancestors, like animals, they learned to forage after the fire, thus deepening their relationship. Yeah, and this is something we still see with animals today, in uh, especially in savannas, open places where the fires are more intense, that the animals will run like quickly after a fire has left, and they've learned to scavenge after the fire. 
So, uh, yeah, go ahead, Teresa. Oh, I, I was just going to say, yeah, they went in after the fire and they started experimenting with what they found, which was sometimes meat, animals that had not made it out of the fire. Yeah, and I like to think about this time, you know, like humans had been around for one and a half million years at this point. You know, humans as we would recognize them as humans, living very simply. This was the Garden of Eden. They didn't really need to force anything. You know, everything was a gift. Everything was enough. It was just there for the taking, a gift. And suddenly this new presence, fire, they were familiar with fire, but it's becoming more of a presence with these savannas. It's more intense. It's stronger. And so it sort of, in a way, pushes its way more into their world. And and they were able to then transport the fire and bring it back to their village and have it as something that they could use to cook or to... Well, but even before the transport, like yeah, I think you were alluding to, um, they began to experiment as they're scavenging, you know, like they'd eat meat and sometimes it would be undercooked, you know, and they'd <laughs> eat meat and sometimes it'd be overcooked. And so think about what that was for them. You know, everything was scavenged and raw. It was just what they were used to. And suddenly the first cooked meat. So eventually they started experimenting. This is what the, you know, our anthropologists believe roughly happened. And they would pile up these coals and cook meat that was undercooked a little bit more. They began to prefer a certain uh, degree of cooked meat. And then the transport. Teresa, did you want to say anything else about that? That's all. But I really like to think about this time in human history before anybody was creating a fire, what it meant to transport a fire. This, by the way, changed the whole community. Just like the sun is the heart of our solar system, the fire became the heart of the community. There began began to be a central fire. And just think of all the things they learned with this fire, all the things it did for them, uh, protected them from some of the predators. Um, they cooked their food. Suddenly more foods were available to them that maybe they couldn't eat before. It changed the entire community, and they became slightly more sedentary. They were completely um, like wandering, and then they could spend more time you know, during the season to be at a place because the fire just opened up so many doors. I can't even imagine what fire represented to these people and what it was to be like the sacred carrier of the fire. You know, they had to perfect. Imagine how hard it would be right now if you just like walked out and, you know, neglecting man-made things just into the forest, hope to run into fire. <laughs> My God, think about how much care you would spend when you finally found it to keep it alive. Wow, what a co-traveler through life that would be. I mean, like I think about the dog, how the dog sort of... Um, joined our tribe, how fire at that time joined our tribe. Fire became an important member of the council, the the heart of the council of the tribe. Um, Just a beautiful time. I love this movie called Quest for Fire that describes this time um, when there was a tribe of Neanderthals that was had a fire and they didn't know how to make it. And as they're trying to escape an enemy, the fire gets doused and put out. And so three of the the cavemen go on a quest for fire. Um, It's got a pretty hot sex scene with Ray Don Chong too, Tommy Chong's daughter. So there's that going for it. Um, But then they run into a homo sapien tribe that knows how to make fire, hand drill, Ray Don Chong's tribe. And she ends up joining the Neanderthals because she falls in love with one of them. And, you know, they, as soon as they find fire again, the same goofball that, like, got it doused in the first place 
ended up putting it out immediately. They're about to kill him, and she's like, oh, wait, look, and, you know, shows him, like, you can create fire. Wow, what powerful magic that was. Um, Don Miguel Ruiz, the author of The Fifth Agreement, um, talks about how humans, according to the Yaqui beliefs, are sorcerers. He describes how words cast spells. Every word is a spell. Um, And think about that for a minute. You know, like, we cast spells with everything we say. He says that if you cast a spell on another human, another sorcerer, it only works if the sorcerer agrees somewhat. So in other words, if I call Teresa stupid, she ha- and she has nothing inside her that thinks she's stupid, my, my black magic I'm trying to cast on her has no power. If there's a part of her that agrees with it, that thinks I am stupid, I have done harm to her through my word. I have cast an evil spell on her. And then you start thinking about the words you tell yourself, you know, um, just the spells you're weaving constantly, this hypnosis of magic. So I think about in this magical world, you know, that the Yaquis describe where not just humans, but everything's a sorcerer. You know, you're seeing magical beings everywhere you go. There are teachers, there are, there are entities with gifts. It's like, it puts the hobbit to shame, you know, as far as just the mystique and depth and magic of this world that they used to live in. Um, and what fire means in that world. Fire, this entity, this this creature, the fire person, um, and how that, that shaped and changed the world. And, oh, I was going to say something about casting spells, but it's gone away from me. Maybe it'll come back. But Teresa... Um, let's see. Hold on. Let me, it almost came back. (laughs) All right, go ahead. I'll see if I can remember it. Oh, gracious. Well, you were, you were talking about Don Miguel Ruiz casting spells. Oh, sorry. I thought that was a T. That's a star. (laughs) So let's see. (laughs) So our culture, I would say our culture, meaning our tribe, mimics fire more than any other element. Um, when I think about earth, you know, how, how solid and steady it is and um, just dependable. And I think about the nature of water and air, you know, and then I think about the nature of fire, how our culture really seems to embody fire. Um, we're violent, just like a fire can be violent. It sweeps through a forest and does can do a lot of harm. Um, we spread. We've spread all over the entire planet, just like fire. You know, it quickly spreads. Um, we're hungry. We have an appetite that can never be satisfied. And think about how much you have to feed a fire. You have to constantly feed a fire to keep it burning. Um, we've changed the earth in so many ways, most of them detrimental at this point. Fire is a huge earth changer, and one of the fastest earth changers there are. You know, a fire burns, and it completely alters the landscape. And also the non-sustainability of fire. A fire doesn't typically last very long. A fire will burn, but compared to a tree, a mountain, a rock, uh, you know, a tortoise, so many of the other entities we see out there, a fire comes, it does its thing, and then it goes away. And our culture um, is proving itself to not be one of the more sustainable ones, where we seem to be coming to the end of things. Um, all these things remind me of fire. So this is one of the reasons I call us the fire people. Um, and if you want to talk a little bit about our technology. Yeah, well, just looking around where we're at, we're in a shelter that has wooden beams, and sure, it's wood, but, 
I'm sure they were milled somewhere and the blades were forged in fire along with the electricity to run the plant and, and have the lights in the factory. Um, let's see, what else do you have here? Yeah, all of our electricity comes from some form of fire, uh, whether it's a nuclear fission reactor or a uh, or like from coal or natural gas. Um, God, everything in our lives, whether it's uh, plastic, rubber, all the way down to our the sweater that I'm wearing is somehow made from fire, whether that's electricity or directly forged in it. Yeah, and you think about the modern tools, even like a sweater. You might say, well, a sweater isn't relying on fire, but then the tools that are used to make the sweater. Mm -hmm. um, and the then you think about a lot of the substances we have that you might not think are directly related to fire, but how many of them involve hot water even? Hmm. You know, like you need fire to heat up the water. Our whole technology, our whole culture is based on fire. I believe we are more the fire people than anyone else. Fire was used by indigenous people all over the place, but so were other things. I think part of our imbalance is this fire nature that we have um, so much adopted because fire is a powerful thing, and that's what our culture ended up wanting, apparently above all else, is power. Um, I contrast that with the indigenous use of fire. You know, indigenous people, this this sorcery, this magic, this power of fire, I think just like a wildfire can have negative or positive effects. Obviously, we've used fire for power and had many negative effects. All the technology um, that we are wreaking havoc on the earth stem from our use of fire. We couldn't do it without fire. Automobiles, all the computer technology. Yeah, even early on when you picture like the early days of our culture, when we started going to war to get more land, to grow more food, to take care of this expanding population because of our way of life, we're acting like a fire. We're spreading, we're eating, we're, we're fighting, we're violent, we're changing the landscape. And what do we use our fire for? Um, forging metal. So now we've got swords, Things like that, weapons. Armor. And inevitably, the thing that pushes our technology forward is never to address a need of how to live on the earth. That's simple. It's so simple. It's to kill other human beings. Um, that's always the thing that's pushed technology forward, right up until, you know, you look at World War II and all the many technologies that came out of that. A war pushes technology forward so fast. And I'd say not just kill other human beings, but kill other beings so we can expand this culture. Yeah. But, you know, even that, like hunting, you know, you don't really need, like, you wouldn't try to harness fire to create a gun because a bow and arrow and a spear have been good enough since anyone can remember. But you are motivated to invent new things to battle an opponent. And as our culture became fractioned and you had different camps in our culture that are all living the same way, expanding, you know, if they invent something that gives them an edge, you're in trouble. So you better invent something really quick that kills people even better and faster. The indigenous people, meanwhile, the way they used fire, um, they would do control burns on the landscape, you know, and they'd help shape the land with this. They weren't completely standoffish. This idea of just like native people that um, left the forest completely alone doesn't seem to be true. But they used fire in such a way that they treated it like an entity among other entities. It was balanced. They didn't force fire on the forest. Um, they found ways that it actually encouraged the growth. It helped the trees. It helped the plants. It helped the animals that lived there. Because all these things they understood were part of them. They want these things to thrive and be healthy. Um, 
they used fire to harden their weapons, you know, like um, you can stick a spear near a fire and make the wood harder to cook their food, of course, um, to stay up later and work on projects, to share stories and ceremonies, um, so many things. And um, oh, I lost my train of thought there, too. Sherlock's barking. So, and our culture actually used the indigenous um, control burns as part of the justification for taking their land from them. I've read letters and things that were written by people um, when the settlers first started coming that said the savages had no more sense than to just run around and burn up their land, and whereas a white man would make use of it and feed people and help people with agriculture. So they thought these savages were just running around and like crazy and, woo, let's have fire to everything. And now we know, because we do control burns as well, that this was actually a very good way to uh, take care of the land, to encourage a healthier, healthier landscape. Um, you know, think of Smokey the Bear. Smokey the Bear did so much damage. When I was a kid, you know, we all liked Smokey the Bear. You know, he was just this big old bear. Only you can prevent forest fires. Um, but in suppressing forest fires to such an extreme, the debris built up. You know, we were even suppressing natural fires as quickly as we could. So as the debris builds up, inevitably a fire is going to break out. You can't control every stroke of lightning. You can't control every um, spark. And when that fire burns, suddenly it's an intense fire. All this debris is getting burned. It burns down so much in the forest. It does so much harm. Um, A natural fire, if it is allowed to happen now and then, doesn't get big enough to really hurt the big trees. So we threw things out of balance with the Smokey the Bear campaign. Hmm. Oh, and also I want to talk a little bit about climate change. So fires and climate change. Um, We, like as the climate is changing, one of the things that's happening as we talked about in Lifeblood is rain is falling more in wet places, but in the places that are dry, they're getting drier. There's the desertification, the deserts are spreading. So in some places like Western United States, Australia, things are getting drier and more fires break out. So that's one of the problems that we see. You know, we see uh, fires in the Amazon we hear about. We see fires in Australia that apparently are one of the, the final blows to the, the stressed koala population. It's said that they're functionally extinct now. Um, and, of course, fires get worse and worse in the United States here out west every year. So fires are actually sometimes intentionally set by loggers by people who work for the logging company. So if a activist group is saying, no, we want to stop logging, we want to stop, um, you know, that this forest doesn't get cut down because this endangered species is there. What do you think happens when a fire mysteriously breaks out all of a sudden? And now we don't have to worry about that endangered species anymore. We don't have to worry about this population that's under stress, whatever justification the activists were using to stop the foresters. So there have been many cases that are range from suspect to outright uh, implicit of people starting fires to justify logging because these fires, though they will remove the justification for protecting the forest, they do not remove the big trees that are really good to be logged. Um, 
It takes a lot to take down a huge tree, and most forest fires do not take the best logging trees out, not in a <clears throat> even marginally healthy forest. Mm. And where we live at in North Carolina, it's not as much of a, a presence, but the longleaf pine a little bit further east, uh, down east in North Carolina, is one of the trees that has evolved to use fires in the forests to help it to uh, open up its seeds and to and to germinate. Um, fire does have positive effects on nature, including what I just said, um, reducing the competition that seedlings have. So some of them will burn up, some of them will uh, continue to thrive and get bigger. It encourages new growth. Um, I remember when I was younger, one of our neighbors was like a heavy chain smoker, and when he <laughs> when he threw his cigarette butt out into the yard, they actually torched their whole yard. And before that, I mean, it's a, a monocrop, a monoculture of grass, but before that, their, their yard wasn't looking too hot. And afterwards, throughout all the, the scorched yard, there were these brilliant blooms of grass growing up. And I just thought, as a you know sixth grader, uh, about 12 years old, I was thinking, wow, that's amazing how the fire just allowed this to happen. It, it actually kind of cleared the slate for new growth. Uh, you were talking about the positive effects mm -hmm. and the negative effects? Well, I hadn't finished to the positive, but I didn't know if you wanted to jump in there. Oh, no, God, I'm talking enough. Please. <laughs> um, fires can also create places that welcome animals. Um, the indigenous people, I didn't realize what the term deer park was. Um, I guess, and, and this is from reading an indigenous people's history of the United States, um, some tribes, some nations would create these fires to kind of bring the animals closer to where they live at. And it would also create the lush vegetation that that particular species needed to, to eat and to thrive. Um, the fire leaves behind a fresh and fertile ash bed and creates a disturbance so that plants can continue to have a succession. So you have like the first part of, uh, uh, once it burns, the small little plants grow up and then the seedlings that are thriving get a little bigger and then they go away because something else gets taller and competes to get the sun, to get the sunlight. But there's also negative effects to, the, to fires. And... <laughs> It can off-gas um, carbon dioxide, which produces a greenhouse effect. And it's also a destruction of life and habitat um, and can cause increased sedimentation in the rivers because once all the plants are gone and it rains, then all of that mud is just channeled right into the river. All right, Gumby, I'm done. So, yeah, um, and... When I'm talking about the fire people, I think about like the last airbender, you know, and I find it an interesting comparison how the, you know, you had all the different, the, the cultures, the four different cultures that are based on elements and the fire people were the ones that got out of balance. They were kind of the industrial culture um, that went to war with everyone else. And I, I wonder if the creator of that like was thinking of our culture, you know, and how we act like fire as well. 
Um, I think as we're trying to escape society, we need to rekindle our relationship with this primal entity, this this ally, this um, God, I hate to call it a creature, and yet it's weird to call fire a, a people because I think of it as singular. But this this powerful being, this fire, that has always been an ally to the human being for at least one and a half million years and has done so much to empower us. It's like it just gave us this power and, you know, what we chose to do with it, we chose to do with it. But we need to, to reacquaint ourselves with fire because we live in a culture that is based on fire, that acts like fire, that behaves like fire, that has technology, advanced technology, that is all um, stemming from our use, our... our Manipulation of fire, and yet so many people don't know how to build a fire. So many people, you know, have don't remember where it comes from, don't remember our origins, don't remember the connection in so many ways, including the special relationship we have with fire. I would say if you want to start rekindling that relationship, or if you feel like you already have a relationship with fire to strengthen it, my favorite way is what I call the one match fire. Um, and I think it really helps when you give yourself the challenge of like 10 minutes, a 10-minute one-match fire. If you don't want to do the 10-minute thing, still, one match. Give yourself one match. See what you can do to light a fire with one match. By doing that, you build your relationship. And a lot of people want to jump right into like primitive skills, like primitive ways to make fire. I think it's more important to know how to build and maintain a fire than the original combustion creation of a fire. Um and a match can be can take some skill to use. So if you want to do the 10-minute challenge, like try it on a certain day, you know, certain weather, certain habitat. If it's really easy, try it on another day. Or even if it isn't, keep trying it in different places. Can you do it in the rain? This will force you to find your allies among the plant people. I went into all that about plant evolution and everything earlier and about how plants store fire because plants are a huge... Um, they're sort of like our ambassadors to fire. We can't relate to fire without the plants, unless you just like our distant ancient ancestors run into, uh, you know, a lightning strike or maybe a fireball vomited out by a volcano or something. But for the most part, we need the plants to help us um, have this relationship with fire. So building and maintaining a fire, um, you know, how to care for it. The teepee structure is something that a lot of people like, and I like it too, you know, especially to start a fire. I used to exclusively do a teepee fire where you take your sticks, you break them, and, you know, you always want to start with tiny sticks and build up, you know, slowly. A lot of people break it into categories like finger size, wrist size, etc. Um, I've kind of gotten away from that, although if it helps, you definitely do that. But the point is, it starts off, it's a little baby fire, it eats a little fine baby stuff, and then grows bigger and eats bigger and bigger stuff. Um, teepee is great. You can just strictly use a teepee and be fine. I have over the years preferred the log cabin. So I'll start with a teepee and then I start laying uh, sticks, you know, kind of like a floor, um, all in one direction over the fire and then in another direction over the fire. Usually I close in the teepee. So it's not over the fire. It's almost like a log cabin. I'm making little walls that are like two one way, then two on top of those going the other way and closing in the teepee, you know, as close as I can get to the fire until I'm over the fire. And then I start laying them like little platforms. 
especially when it's raining and I need a strong, hot fire that's going to survive a heavy rain pour, love the log cabin fire. I find it to make a, a good platform quickly for cooking for all the things I use fire for. So consider that structure. Um, the most important thing to remember, and I'm thinking about all the times we've uh, taught kids how to build fires. We do the one match fire challenge. I used to try to do the bow drill and everything, and it was kind of frustrating. And even if a kid could get a coal, um, if they haven't learned this, they, they couldn't do anything with it. It would just go out. They couldn't keep a fire going. And that's what I started learning the, the one match, like how to, how to care for a fire, how to talk to a fire, how to listen to a fire and relate to it is more important. Um, tiny sticks. If there's one thing that somebody's having trouble with fire and I haven't even seen what their problem is yet and I could yell to them, it's more tiny sticks. <laughs> Wherever you're at, there's a different tree that's going to provide ideal tiny sticks. When I'm in the mountains of North Carolina, it's hemlock. Here around the Piedmont of North Carolina, it's red cedar. But wherever you're at, there's some plant that gives you copious, dry, tiny sticks, at least one plant. But however you can get those tiny sticks, and sometimes they're in the form of uh, grass stalks, that's going to help you start a fire. The more wet it is, the rainier, the more tiny sticks. Oh, and something that you could check out, I know I've shared it before on our Facebook page, is uh, we have on our YouTube channel a fire from one match that Gumby recorded. And I luckily got the fire that day in the mountains of North Carolina. So you can check that out. Maybe I'll um, post that once more on the uh, Escaping Society Facebook page. Yeah, and uh, Tom Brown Jr. does this thing he calls Temple of Fire, where he encourages people to make the smallest fire possible with tiny, with little sticks and never build it up. Um, and sometimes just sit all night, just keeping the small fire and what that does is it keeps that conversation going. You never just like throw something on the fire and walk away. You have to constantly watch this fire, constantly feed it, constantly listen to it. Are you overfeeding it? Back away. Does it need more? You better be there and you better be aware. It's an awareness thing. It, it really brings you into that conversation um, because fire is something you really need to nurture and remember what a gift it is. Also, these one-match fires, you know, beginning to – build and, and use fires, um, starts teaching you about the gifts of the different trees. It's not just wood, like the Richard Feynman example I gave earlier of uh, what fire does from the physicist's perspective. It's also the different kinds of wood. For instance, conifers like uh, pine, especially red cedar around here, they tend to burn really hot and bright. So if somebody was like fell in a river and was cold and emergency needed heat, I'd be grabbing cedar branches especially. If I needed light at night, I needed to read something, really bright light, cedar branches. If I want to start a fire, um, if I can grab tiny cedar branches or even some pine or hemlock conifers. You know, remember what we were talking about with the plant evolution, those dinosaurs among the, the plant species, um, these conifers, they're, they're great, bright, hot, <coughs> hot, they're really good for that kind of stuff. Now, if you're cooking, you want something gentler, um, then you start getting into hardwoods, you know, and the different hardwoods, I'm just generalizing because we could do multiple podcasts on every species of tree. They all provide a different kind of wood that makes a different kind of fire. Um, banking coals overnight. I wouldn't throw on a bunch of cedar branches. I wouldn't have coals the next morning. So you got to start knowing the different tree tribes among the plant people. They all have a different gift to help with fire. Um, and that's an amazing thing when you start getting into it. Um, and in combination, they do different things too. 
banking coals was a huge goal of mine for a long time. I really wanted to master because we do these survival overnights where we'd have to get a friction fire. We couldn't have a fire if we didn't get it. And sometimes it was really hard. Sometimes the survival challenge was not to have any uh, tools. We'd have to do it with rocks or cord that we brought in. So if you got a fire, you felt really lucky. Sometimes you had to work your ass off to get it. And the last thing you wanted to do was let it go out. So nighttime became a problem. You know, we'd had to have a, a fire watcher. Um, the way I learned to bank coals actually came from a little kid by accident. I had taught him how to make fire, and we were doing a survival overnight, and it was just me and him, um, this little boy. And I said, well, why don't you get our fire going, and I'll, uh, you know, do some other things around camp. Um, but you know how to start a fire. I wanted to empower him. You know, you don't need me to tell you how to do it. You already have this relationship with fire and the trees. You know what to do. So he randomly picked this spot that had a hole in the ground where a tree had rotted out. It was a hole about the size of a, a, t- a tin can, a soup can. And he built a fire there. And we had our fire. We cooked our dinner and everything. The next morning, beautiful coals. And I noticed they were all in that hole. And I'd heard of digging out a fire pit before. But I gave up on that because around here, there's always roots. I didn't want to, like, it didn't seem like the right area for digging out a fire pit. But if I can make a small hole, like, again, the size of a a soup can, maybe a little bit bigger, um, that will hug, keep the heat, keep the heart of the fire alive. And more often than not, especially if I build up the fire, you know, kind of big before bed, I'll have coals the next morning. I don't have to worry about restarting the fire. I just take a stick, dig them out, blow on them, and there's fire. Um, And it's an amazing thing when you start having that going because the longer it goes, the more you have those nestled coals. So like three or four days in, it's almost like having a stove, you know, (laughs) like you don't have to worry about starting a fire. There's the heat in the ground. You just stir it up and blow on it. And it's like turning up your stove. And something else that is really nice is that fire is it's another person with you. And so if you have a fire on your first or second night out in the woods and you can keep it going by banking coals that that friend that entity has been with you for days upon days and i just really like that it's it's like a another friend with you on your trip yeah a couple other tips um with these one match fires and i'm thinking about the things i've i've told kids to help them along and if you don't have much experience i mean sometimes you think oh i'm not a kid but (laughs) sometimes kids do better with things because they're more open-minded so you might have this problem Fire burns up. You know, this is something that seems condescending to some people when I say that. But a lot of problems I see with people trying to light fire is they forget that. In Even other words, yeah, they'll, they'll light a match. They'll burn themselves because they forget fire burns up or they'll hold the match wrong. You know, you, if you have a wooden match, you want to tilt it where the fire is burning up the matchstick a little bit. Not straight up. You'll burn your fingers, but at an angle. Um, when you light your, your kindling, your fire, you want the match underneath Um, Not on top. I've seen so many people put out matches by trying to light a fire from the top. You want to touch the flame to the wood or the tinder, Um, not the match. I've seen a lot of people smother the match by doing that. Um, Let's see, what else? Pay attention to the wind. Um, Get really close to the fire when you start it. I've seen people stand up and light a fire, and then they have to, like, hope that a wind's not going to come and snuff it out as they get close to the fire and then light it. Get right beside the fire when you're lighting the match and pay attention to the wind. Put your back to it. When the fire gets rolling, you can use the wind to your benefit, but at the beginning, the wind's more apt to put it out. So block the wind, get the fire going, and then you can pay attention to the wind and how it can help feed the fire, Um, fan those flames. 
Yeah, and we've been tending our little hobo stove fire this, during this podcast, and it reminds me of the three things that fire needs. Um, so when we started, we, we needed to get some of the, uh, the tiny sticks or grass, um, dried grass to start it. So that is its food, um, and fire is, or the entity of fire can be considered an herbivore in that sense. And once you light it, you want to make sure that 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 fire maintains the heat, like Gumby mentioned, the heart of the fire when you're banking coals. Any fire needs that, that heart where it can remain hot enough to keep it burning. And then, of course, air. So I think Gumby had mentioned in a previous podcast that he has a ritual of, like, uh, blowing on the fire four times. And I've started doing that, trying to count it and see if it works. Yeah, and the way you blow is so important. I tell the kids, not like a birthday candle, but uh, I've heard another teacher say, like, you're blowing on a butterfly's wing. <laughs> I don't. I see what she's trying to get at, but I blow harder than, like, I might blow on a butterfly's wing. But what I do remind myself is that I'm feeding the fire my oxygen. Mm-hmm. Remember what Richard Feynman said about fire, what that oxygen represents. You know, you're... You're blowing on this fire, and that oxygen, as it hits the fire, is getting superheated, and it's locking into these carbon molecules that are sloughing off into smoke into the atmosphere, and it builds your fire. It makes more jiggle. So you're feeding your air. So it makes me blow in a certain, like, (sighs) a certain sustained way, you know, that lasts longer. Yeah, you, you told me, like, a long, slow breath. And a steady breath. But yeah, that's that's really um, all I wanted to say was like the, the food for the fire. Make sure you're feeding your baby fire. And, and make, remember that fire is in fact an herbivore. Mm-hmm. And make sure that it maintains the heat within the fire, that heart of the fire, and give it some air. Give some of your air to the fire. And always remember that fire is alive. This uh, Thinking of fire as an herbivore was a thought I had the other day that I thought was pretty neat. Because fire will cook meat. It will burn things that are not plants, but it doesn't grow from those. Um, what it needs to grow, what it, you know, just like when you eat food, it helps you grow, especially a growing child, um, is its food. And what does fire eat for food? Almost exclusively plant material. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. You know, it seems so predatory, you know, it's its nature, but it's like a voracious herbivore. Um, Now I want to talk a little bit about friction fire. And again, those one-match fires, like, I stress it over and over. If you you think you know everything about fire, you got this stuff nailed, challenge yourself in different places with a one-match fire. I think that skill is what's going to save your life more than any other. But wouldn't be a fire podcast if I didn't talk about friction fire. And friction fire is my favorite way to start a fire um, because of the freedom. Um, If you know how to do friction fire, you can go in the middle of the forest and you know what to do to have this valuable ally of fire with you. Um, Teresa, you want to talk about bow drill? Oh, why, sure. Well, I haven't had much success myself. Um, Gumby has been a great teacher uh, for the bow drill for me, but I must say I still haven't been able to uh, win my fire. So uh, I guess I'll talk a little bit about it, and Gumby can fill in the details because I'm I'm not an expert at it by any stretch of the imagination. Neither am I. But uh, I remember going out into the woods and selecting a piece of... We've been using the cedar that's around here, the eastern red cedar. 
um, using our knife to split it so we make equal halves um, that we call blanks. And then I'm not going to really describe how you how you create it, but you want to make sure that you have like a base and a um, a handhold. Yeah, and it's kind of abstract. It's pretty easy to find videos on you know all these things we're talking about. And what do you call that the the stick part? What do you call that? The spindle. Or the something? spindle, yeah. The spindle. And the fireboard or hearthboard, the handhold, and the bow. And the bow, yeah. So. Um, I haven't tried it with natural cordage, but uh, we've been using just kind of uh, rugged shoelaces or any sort of uh, cordage that we find. Yeah, we do survival overnights, and the challenges is in- increase. Like, the best thing is, like, clothesline or 550 cord, but uh, we also like to try, like, you know, what if you have to improvise and use shoelaces? Like, you kind of want to twist them up, especially two together to make them stronger, or even a, a T-shirt, you know, that you can cut up and spiral it so it's longer, and then twist that together so it's stronger. Um, you can make natural cordage, which is one of my favorite things about the bow drill, is it gets you talking to plants even more, because plants have another gift they offer you. They can make rope. Um, and some of the cons of the bow drill are that it takes a lot of parts to make. Um, sometimes we do this without a knife, and that can be a lot of work sometimes, depending on how you do it. So there's a lot of parts in the bow drill. The plus is, I would say that anybody wants to learn about friction fire, I would, I would recommend, and this is debatable, not everybody agrees with me, to really get good at the bow drill. I think the bow drill is your fallback friction fire thing. There are many different areas, many different places in the world, different plants you can be near that other things work really good. But when it doesn't, I'd say fall back on bow drill. You know, that's the thing that when everything else fails, as far as friction fire goes, um, it just seems to work really well. And you can direct so much of your energy to it. And it does take a lot of energy. I was just thinking about, uh, (laughs) like, if you think you're in good shape, um, try to get a fire from a bow drill set. Um, Posture is important. Like Gumby said, you could probably find videos um, rather easily on YouTube of how to uh, make a bow drill and how to use it. And also, my goodness, if you're going to exert all of this effort and energy to try and get this tiny coal from the bow drill set, make sure you have some sort of tinder bundle that once you get the coal, you can nestle it in there and, and help breathe it into existence even more. Mm-hmm. And um, another really popular way to start a fire is the hand drill. Um, I found that to be a little harder to use, but it takes less material. It's super quick to make, even if you don't have a knife. Um, and it's really good if you want to know how to um, live primitively in the forest of your area to study the indigenous people. They've been doing it for thousands of years here. You find a couple things. One thing is the things that they did that you can't do anymore because the environment has been devastated so much. Um, that's kind of a sad reflection of how things have actually changed so much in the last few hundred years. Um, it's also instructive because they had to deal with similar things, similar climate, similar um, weather patterns and seasons. So it's interesting to see like the shelters that they have learned that they worked for them and the method of starting fire. Around here, I think the hand drill um, was one of the primary methods people started a fire. And you just have a stock and the technique is all about how you 
Um, they call it floating. You can float on a hand drill and just warm up the hearth board, which can be much smaller than a bow drill. And uh, warm it up, warm it up, warm it up. And if you get really good, you can put downward pressure without your hands going down the hand drill until you see smoke. And then you can start really going down the hand drill and like getting that final bit of heat and just going for it. And then you can get the black powder and light a coal and you got your fire. You mentioned stock. What type of stock do you use for the spindle? Um, gosh, there's many different kinds. There's, uh, let's see, there's mullein, there's yucca. Um, if you can find a straight branch, all the woods that are good. Basically, one of the rules of thumb for um, friction fire is if you can make a dent in it with your thumbnail, um, it's probably good. But that doesn't mean other things aren't. You can basically make a friction fire with any kind of wood. So what we're talking about is the easier stuff versus the harder stuff. I've gotten a bow drill fire with like um, really solid hard oak before, which is considered a really bad <laughs> wood to use. But it's possible. So kind of mid-level stuff. Like cedar, I just have a lot of luck with cedar. I've been told cedar isn't ideal, but man, I have so much luck with cedar with friction fire. Um, sycamore, tulip tree, those are other popular ones. Willow. And out west, um, I hear a lot about cottonwood. We don't have many cottonwoods here in North Carolina. Um, when we were traveling this summer, I saw a lot of cottonwoods out west, and that's one of the things I miss about being out there. They're beautiful and very helpful trees. Um, the fire saw. If I'm around bamboo, this is the way I'm going to try to make a fire. Um, and it's kind of difficult to explain, but again, look online and see what a fire saw is. But basically, you cut a section of bamboo, split it lengthwise where you get two sections. You sharpen one edge and make a little notch on another half, and then you can put your tinder bundle under there. And by the way, with friction fire, this is where it's really important to have a tinder bundle. Um, tinder bundle being really fine kind of fibery stuff like the bark of a red cedar tree the inner bark of a tulip poplar even bunched up crushed up uh, dry grasses um, to some extent river birch but you have to really i've had less luck with that when it comes to friction fire but it can definitely help with the overall uh, fire making and it's really neat when you use the tinder bundle because you really have to think about those three things the the air the fuel and the heat and it's sort of a dance to balance all those things um, but the fire saw, yeah, you just saw back and forth, saw back and forth. And really quickly, if you get the hang of it, it'll smoke and you have a coal and it, you just lift it up and boom, the quickest friction fire I've ever gotten was with bamboo, just, you know, making it, using it, bam, fire. It was incredible. So that's definitely something to check out. A couple other things I've played with is the fire thong where you make a long strip and you stand on your hearth board and you, you rub it back and forth, um, Again, kind of hard to describe. Look it up. But I, I've gotten smoke with that. It's got potential. Um, fire plow is another thing I've seen used. If you've watched Castaway with Tom Hanks, that's what he used to get his fire, fire plow. I've never liked that one. I've never really experimented with it much. Um, it just seems, I don't know, unnecessarily dangerous. I've never been in, an, in a situation that I felt like that was the way to go. And finally, one last um, primitive method, the uh, fire piston. Um, I've always wanted to be able to make one of these, have not gotten around to it, but there are cultures on the planet that have used hollow reeds, like tubes, like say bamboo. I'm not sure exactly what they use for a fire piston, but it's like a bamboo. And if you have a tube that fits inside another tube tightly enough, and it's got a bottom to it, just like the piston in a car works, you can hit it with your, your hand and compress the oxygen in it so fast that it ignites 
a little tinderball you have in there and have instantaneous fire. Um, that just amazes me how this thing works. So I've got, I've bought a fire piston before. Um, I think it was, I'm not sure what it was made out of, but yeah, to, to think that there was actually people that have made these out of natural materials. Um, wow. What a skill. Mm-hmm. Well, Gumby, don't go too far because I don't have much experience with this either. Um, but I remember one of the first activities that I went on with Gumby before we were, well, kind of before we were dating, um, he was teaching me how to make char cloth. And I wasn't exactly sure what I would need it for. But a little on down the line, he showed me uh, the method of flint and steel. And so the making of char cloth allows you to use the flint and steel method and capture that spark. And then once the spark hits the char cloth, it's really cool because it starts to become that, that glowing ember as if you were uh, using the bow drill set. Gumby? Yeah, flint and steel is not, you know, we're talking about a different lineage now. We've moved on from uh, friction fire. Flint and steel is sort of the lineage, I'd say, most in our culture. Although, according to Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, there was a uh, some tribes in the Northeast that started their fires with flint and steel, which was a surprise to me. I'm still, uh, have not confirmed that, so check that out for yourself. But flint and steel led to lighters, which is still basically flint and steel, add some fuel for a sustained flame. Um, and the thing I don't like about it is you need fire to make a lot of the stuff that you need in flint and steel originally, like to char the cloth, for instance. <laughs> um, and also steel, you know, that can be a pretty hard thing to come by, especially nowadays, because back then they had high carbon steel, and that's what you want for flint and steel. Now we have this uh, tempered steel and stainless steel, and it doesn't work so good for or at all for flint and steel. Flint is not something you run into very commonly, but you can use quartz. And another kind of steel you can use is like a file from a, uh, like one of those long, <clears throat> I forget what they call them, but like a bar file from a hardware store. If you break that, that's a pretty good piece of uh, metal to strike against a quartz rock and make a spark. Um, you can break the quartz rock a little bit more for a sharper edge because what the spark is, is the piece of the metal. The rock is actually harder than the metal. So the rock heats up the little piece of metal so much that it throws out a, a burning spark. And if you have char cloth and you're holding it nearby and it lands on it, um, char cloth lights really easy. Char cloth is a lot of fun to make. Um, 100% cotton. You just put it in like a little tin, like an Altoids tin, punch a hole in the top, put it in your fire or on your, on your coals, even better, even on your stove, and it'll start smoking. And I've heard when the smoke stops, it's probably done. You take it out and you look at it, and if it looks completely black, give it a try. You know, make a spark. Um, even if you have a magnifying glass, like um, that lights char cloth really easy. So char cloth is a handy thing to have around, no matter what your fire method is. <clears throat> but I find it doesn't give me the freedom I want. It's a neat heritage skill, and because you need tinder um, to help the char cloth, like you'd put your char cloth, you wouldn't just put char cloth into a, a fire with tiny sticks. You'd have a hell of a time making a fire with that you'd put it into a little nest of fine materials like cedar bark. So it's a really neat exercise in those three things fire needs, you know, balancing the air with the fuel, with the heat. If you put too much heat, try to like, you know, really press it, you smother it. You blow too hard, you might scatter it. Um, but you just got to find the fine balance. So I feel like it gets that conversation with fire going really well. 
Um, let me see. Is there anything else I want to say? Well, strikers, you know, that's something a lot of people use when they're camping. This is part of the flint and steel lineage. You can, I've heard that you can take uh, stainless steel and superheat it, get a super hot fire, and the stainless steel, you can like heat it up till it's glowing red, and you've got better odds for getting a spark after that with uh, flint and steel. Haven't tried it, but maybe something to play with. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, there's magnifying glasses. This is one of my favorite ways to start a fire because you're directly using the sun. All these other things are ways in one way or the other to use the sun's energy that's been stored some way on this earth. Remember, the sun is the source of all energy. There's no thing as energy that didn't come from the sun that we're familiar with. Um, and I'm not getting into the esoteric like spiritual energy or anything like that. Um magnifying glass, you're using the direct sun's energy, not even stored. We're talking about the raw stuff, the pure stuff. You know, so you, if you have a big magnifying glass, try to protect it. Don't keep it from, uh, try not to let it get all scratched up. And if you've got char cloth, wow, lights really well. We were doing a survival expedition where we could only bring in random things. We'd reach in this hat with like, I had 150 different objects and you could just bring what you pulled out of the hat and your clothes for three days. Went to the mountains, and what I had was a compass. And I was like, crap, you know, I know how to navigate without a compass, so it's kind of useless, but I brought it anyway. Well, we're working our asses off to get this bow drill fire and cannot get it. We're struggling and struggling. We got plenty of black powder. So one of the boys with me has the idea of trying to use the tiny, tiny magnifying glass, and it was a tiny one. We couldn't light anything with it. We'd, you know, try to burn a leaf, try to burn this, nothing, not even smoke. But then he tried it on the black powder, this fine, dry black powder, and it started our fire. We had a coal, added to it, built it up really carefully, saved our butts. So magnifying glasses are great. Um, you can improvise them by building what's called a bubble lens. You can take a plastic bag with a little bit of water and twist it and twist it and twist it till it's really tight. And actually, if you get the angle right on a bright sunny day, use that to, you know, get that little pinpoint of light and get a fire. You can also make a puddle lens. Take a glass bottle and put a little bit of water on the bottom, um, like turn it upside down, and it's kind of indented. Have a little puddle of water on top, and that can bend light. And if you are really careful and lucky, you can direct that into a little pinpoint of light and start a fire. I've experimented with both of these a lot and have yet to get a fire with one of them, but I know other people who say they have. You can even take ice, and if you shave it into the convex shape of a magnifying glass, you can start fire with ice, which is pretty freaking cool when you think about it. <laughs> Electrical means, um, if you get fine steel wool, it'll burn just like tinder uh, with electricity. You can get one of those nine volt batteries where the two terminals are on the same side. You know, they look like a little box. Um, just touch the steel wool to it and bam, it starts burning. You got fire right there. If you don't have steel wool, you can try to experiment with different filaments, anything that's a fine metal that conducts electricity. Um, one time for a fire building class, I was showing off for the students by taking jumper cables and attaching them to my battery and I held a, I believe it was a metal paper clip in one of the, the, God, the words escaping me, the little like gripper thing. Um, and as soon as I touched the other one to it and a tinder bundle, the paper clip heated up red hot, started a fire. 
I've heard you can blow up your car battery like that, so <laughs> be careful with that. But, you know, if you're stranded someplace, you need to start a fire, you know, the car's not starting, you're in the middle of the mountains, it's snowing, that might be worth the risk. <laughs> and same with the cell phone. I've heard people can start a, a fire with the battery of their cell phone, but again, I've heard it can blow up your cell phone battery, but there might be a time that you need the fire more than the cell phone. Mm. Have you ever used... You were talking about some MacGyver stuff there, but have you ever used certain chemicals? I think I used to have a magnesium striker. I'm not sure if that's listed in this or not. With Gumby? Um, well, potassium permanganate, um, that's something you can find, at least you used to be able to find. I think you still can at like Home Depot. It's used in uh, something with plumbing. But what I've used it for is if you take a little bit of potassium permanganate and like mix it in with water and make it like a light pink, it can treat water. Um, if you make it a little bit stronger, it can treat a wound. It's a disinfectant. <laughs> and it can mix with quite a few things to make a chemical reaction to start a fire. You can take 50-50 potassium permanganate, put it on a rock, pour some white sugar on it, 50-50, take another rock, start crushing them together, and they'll start sparking and sparking, and then poof, you've got a fire. Oh and then you start adding stuff to it, you've got a fire. Um, you can also take a little bit of potassium permanganate, which looks like a black powder, and put either brake fluid or antifreeze <laughs> or glycerin. And there are different kinds of all this stuff, so you got to like research to see and experiment which one works. But any one of those three things creates a chemical reaction that starts a fire. And it's neat because you put it on there and nothing happens for a minute. And then suddenly it starts smoking like a chimney, like shh, and then it goes out. And you're like, well, that was anticlimactic. And suddenly... Boom, it's fire. <laughs> so that's a, a really fun way when you're like teaching people how to start a fire just for the novelty of it. I remember we tried to use... Yes, yeah, Sherlock. We tried to use hand sanitizer one time to start a fire, and they must have changed the, uh, like, the amount of alcohol that's in it because kids in schools were starting to drink it or something. But we tried and tried to light hand sanitizer, and it just wouldn't work. But maybe you could you know, experiment with that. Gumby, you said you used to be able to use hand sanitizer. Yeah, I don't know what the difference is. Some have uh, had it not work, and I have had it work, but there was one time we found a lighter that was just sparking. It was out of fuel, and we needed a fire, and uh, there was a porta potty nearby, so I got some of the <laughs> hand sanitizer and put it on a leaf because I knew it had alcohol in it and sparked the lighter near it, and sure enough, it lit. So we started our fire that way. Strange. Yeah, and... uh some parting tips, you know, when we're talking about building fires. A bag of birch bark is a really good thing to have. We have it in our van right now. We keep a bag of birch bark. Um, when the weather's tricky, birch bark has an oil in it that's flammable. So we'll stick it in our hobo stove or if we're building a fire outside. And it's a great way to give you that little edge, you know, to get your fire started. And you still have to do all the stuff with the one-match fire, you know, the tiny sticks and everything. Um, magnesium striker. That is one of the best things I know to keep around. Um, you can get them for so cheap, and I've been in the mountains before where we tried all kinds of methods of starting a fire, and that was the thing that came through. So I just can't think of any reason not to have a magnesium striker on you somewhere. It's You get plenty of bang for your buck with that thing. You've got the striker that can start a fire by itself in the right conditions, and then you've got the magnesium that you can take the back of your knife um, and scrape off, you know, about a quarter size of the silver magnesium that's flammable and then spark that and you've got ignition and just feed it, you know, build that fire up. Um, 
free matches. You can get them. You used to be able to get them at any gas station. There's less gas stations that do it now, but tobacco shops, scavenged lighters. I never pass up a lighter I see on the ground. I always check it. I used to have a old bag of them. Um, haven't found as many lately. Um, and a couple other things to help get your fire going in wet weather. Fire bugs. This is a Boy Scout trick where you roll up um, a newspaper, you know, several pages of a newspaper really tight, and then you tie a string around it and I don't know, maybe five or six different parts along the rolled up newspaper and then cut them, you know, so each part is tied up with one piece of string and then dip it in melted candle wax or paraffin wax. Mm. Um, this can be a good way if you hold a lighter to it or some way to start a fire, it'll burn and burn. And so you can use that sustained burn to build up your fire. It can help you on a rainy day. I don't like that method so much as I do Vaseline-soaked cotton balls. I always melt the Vaseline, but other people don't. But one way or the other, if you can get a cotton ball and get Vaseline all over it um, and then just put it in a plastic bag or something like that, rainy day, take that cotton ball, really try to pull it. It's going to be all slimy with the Vaseline. Stretch it out, pull it, make it really as light and fluffy as you can, and light that. And it will burn by itself for quite some time. And that that time you can use to feed it and gently uh, coax a fire into life. Um, Fatwood. This is something a lot of bushcrafters know about. The fatwood or a a knot of a pine, particularly where a branch has come off of a pine tree and the pine tree has died. And you'll see this little like knob where the branch was coming off of. This is dense um, pine sap. And pine sap is flammable, so you can use that fatwood and kind of shave it off or even just throw it in their hole, and it will burn like a candle. Um, can be a really helpful thing. Fuzz sticks, another Boy Scout trick. Take a stick, and uh, even if the stick is wet, the inside is not. So if you take your knife and just make little feathers around it, make it fuzzy, you know, kind of bite your knife into it, but don't shave off the piece, and make all these little feathers of the wood, the bark, kind of poking up. Um, I don't use this as often as I do actually just shaving the wood for the same reason. You know, the outside might be wet, but if I shave it, I'll get to dry wood, and then I have all this kindling, this fine wood, you know, from a bigger piece of wood, and I can throw that on the fire, and that can help me build up a fire on a, on a wet day. There's this one day last spring that we were in the mountains, and we were actually inside of a rain cloud, And uh, I was trying all this stuff, and there was just no fire to be had. Um, (laughs) That might be the most challenging fire I've ever tried. I had to give up on that one. Um, Torches are something I experimented with a little bit. They never look like they do on TV, you know, where they just kind of walk around leisurely in the cave with their big torch. It just keeps flaming and flaming. Birch Park can make... (laughs) Bless me. Birch Park can make a... uh, pretty quick torch, but I mean, you'd better just have something you need to do in like one minute. Um, rendered animal fat I've heard can help with a torch. You know, you might dip birch bark in that or something else. If you tie it really tight, a piece of cloth. And also a thing I might experiment with, um, if you're interested in torches is melted pine sap. Like I said, that can be flammable and that can make a more sustained burn. Um, And consider what you want your fire to do. You're going to treat your fire a lot differently if you want a fire for heat as opposed to cooking. There have been plenty of times we've been outside and we're eager to have both, but we have to like treat the fire a certain way, like let it burn down, get good coals, things like that for a sustained cooking fire, and then build it up in a different way for heat. So think about the purpose of your fire as you use fire. 
and safety. Clear the debris back. You know, they say a good 10 feet. You're lucky if you're in an area you can clear it back 10 feet, but as much as you want, you can. And um, if you have rocks, sure, build a fire ring around it. I always build my fire first and then build the ring around the fire because I found I have bad luck if I, like, um, build the ring and then I think I'm going to get a fire. A lot of times the fire doesn't come when I do that. I don't know why. Um, But, yeah, keep it safe. If uh, you're out here in the east, like North Carolina, forest fires get exaggerated a lot. It's actually kind of hard most of the time to start a fire or keep a fire going. So I don't worry too much about forest fires. But... You know, to make it a little bit safe, why not? <clears throat> and finally, a fire pit reflector. If it's a cold day, um, the easiest fire pit reflector I've had is to put sticks in the ground and just put debris between the two sticks and make sort of a, a half circle. That will reflect more of the heat back at you, and it's a really good way to stay warmer. Ooh, did you talk about Apache Long Match? Um, God, I thought I was going you to. You said Long Match here but I'm not sure if you actually talked about it. Oh, you go ahead and talk about it, because I really don't have any uh, technique for it. I just sort of <laughs> try to improvise it when I go, and you've had kind of one of the neater experiences I know of. Well, yeah, I, I don't have much of a technique either, but boy, talk about um, humbling and, oh my God, informative and just having a conversation with your fire. Imagine that you've worked so hard and you've been sawing on your bow drill or your hand drill and you've you've got this coal and you've got your tinder bundle uh, right next to you and so you're able to carefully place this this coal that just means the world to you right now into the tinder bundle and then you blow your breath into it and the fire begins to get bigger and what do you do well um, in my experience we made a tiny little fire which is, again, a kind of like a meditation to keep it just small enough so you don't get, you know, catch the woods on fire or uh, draw the attention of a park ranger or some sort of official. Um, but sometimes having uh, that bow drill in a place where you might not want to stay in camp um, can be problematic because then how do you move the fire? So Gumby suggested that I find two pieces of bark that are kind of big, at least as big as your hand, but but bigger if you can, and carefully scoop up some of the fire into that bark, and then very carefully begin to walk to wherever your campsite is at. And when I tried it, I, I successfully got back to the campsite, but not without freaking out several times along the way. And carrying fire in your hands, I mean, even with a bit of you know, crumbling bark in between is, it is an experience. So (laughs) I would stop every once in a while because the fire was getting too big. Um, The oxygen moving around as I walked, it was too much. So it was growing too fast. So I'd have to stop and stoop down and, um, and then maybe it would start to die out. So I'd have to quickly find a little bit more food to feed my fire and then carefully stand up and start to walk, but not too fast, but not too slow. Um, So it was, it was really an interesting experience, and that was called an Apache long match. Yeah, transporting fire is a really uh, different and neat way to start relating to fire as well, as Teresa's talking about. But basically, I've never found anything that I can say, this is how you do it. But you kind of improvise, you know, you want something hard enough, like two pieces of bark, you know, kind of a sandwich that you can carry it, and then finer stuff inside um, and experiment, because what you want is for it to smolder. That's the ideal 
And then I love the mindfulness of it, of just watching that fire. What does it need? You know, do you need to breathe on it a little bit? Is it almost about to catch on fire? Can you maybe smother it just a little bit to discourage it from fire? Because the (laughs) ideal is to have a glowing, smoldering coal that you can carry for a long distance and then gently nurture back into fire when you're ready for a fire. And it also helps to have your pockets full of something so that when you get to where you're trying to have your fire, you can immediately start to build it up um, to what you want your fire to be. And I was just reminded of something with the bow drill fire. I haven't been successful with it, but the next time I'm doing a bow drill fire, I think I'm going to do more of a more of a ceremony and like ask the sun to to bless my bow drill set and charge it with its energy. And it's just, I don't know, maybe that has some scientific basis. Maybe it doesn't, but I feel like maybe that might be the component that's missing. And that's why I'm not uh, getting my fire. All right. So this is uh, a turn away from bushcraft and and survival skills into Teresa's um, stoner experience with (laughs) the fire um, at one of our favorite places in the mountains. So I believe that might have been on the wake and bake day, but I can't remember. No, it wasn't. Oh, so we were... Oh, it was, yes. We were sitting around our campsite, and the campfire was, was starting to glow. And my goodness, I um, I was taken along this journey of talking with the fire, and the flames of the fire were separate from what the smoke was saying to me. And... That's when I started to recognize that the stones that were a part of our fire ring, it wasn't a fire ring at all. It was a council of stones, and each stone had a a face. And I'm not talking about a face like a human face, but it had this, um, this persona, this personality in each stone. There was a chief stone. Um, there was like a, a comedian type stone, like a court jester type stone and all manner of other personalities. And I just thought that was really interesting that this fire, it's not just the fire that has a, a, a presence, an essence, but it's, it's everything. And I guess that goes back to, you know, when we talk about animism being all around us. Yeah. You talked about the trees too. And, uh, <laughs> You know, one of the things that impressed me about that the next day as we thought about it and talked about it is, uh, you know, at first we're kind of laughing like, man, you were high. Like, (laughs) wow. You remember how you were saying like that stone had this personality and everything? And then I thought like, what if like what I'm calling sober is actually being closed off and less real? Mm -hmm. And then I realized it doesn't even matter if you believe that like Teresa actually like this rock was funny. This rock was the leader. This rock was grumpy. The whole way of looking at that thing, at, at these rocks as a personality, as a council of stones, was so subjective. It brought us in deeper relationship. It brought us into a magical world of personalities and entities. Whereas even just a flippant word like fire ring, it's objective. It sounds like a tool. It sounds like a dead thing. Um, you know, fire ring doesn't bring me any warmth. Council of stones, even just saying that. Um, I just feel the good energy from that. So, you know, I, I don't know. I just thought that was a really neat insight. And that leads me to um, one of the final thoughts I want to share in this podcast about fire is to see fire animistically. Remember that fire is, like all things, alive. And it's something that has a gift for you um, if you're worthy, if you treat it well. 
Um, an example of what this might look like dealing with fire is, you know, before you go try to start your fire, let's say you're doing it with friction fire, let's say a bow drill just for an example, pray for it, you know, like ask for grandfather fire to come, you know, really pour your heart into it. Think about why you need the fire. Is there any selfless reason why you need the fire? Even better, a better motivation, but pray for this fire. Ask for it. You're not entitled to it. There's nothing that says you have the right to have a fire, you know? The fire is is a friend. It's a relative. It's a it's an ancestor. Um and then build it a home, you know? This is the way you can invite fire to join you. Like, build it a really nice home. Maybe it's a little nest, a tinder nest. Maybe it's also a teepee um, of tiny sticks, you know? Build a really inviting home for a fire. Think about what fire wants. Think about where fire wants to live. Look at your structure you built. Does it look like a nice home for a fire? Because if it doesn't, you know, maybe fire won't want to be there. Maybe fire won't want to join you and hang out with you. Um, and as you're gathering the parts and the wood, talk to those trees and plants. Remember that you can't just pull fire out of the air. Um, you don't have that ability. You have not stored fire in your body in the same way that plants have. They are your ambassadors. They are your intermediaries. When you want to talk to grandfather fire, you have to go and talk to the tree people and the plant people first. Keep that in mind. They're your ambassadors. They're your interpreters in a way, you know? So have a good relationship with the tree and the the plant people if you're going to ask for fire to join you. And think about um, when you are trying to start your fire, like in our example here with a bow drill fire, it's a ceremony. It's not just a matter of like heating up the wood, you know, to reach a certain temperature to get your fire. Think about that you're performing this ritual, this ceremony. And I've heard it said that this is sexual energy, that, uh, you know, the spindle represents male energy and the, the hearth board, the hole that it goes into represents female energy. And the friction, you know, it's like the sex act, um, the motion. And just like sex, um, if you do it well, if everything, you know, aligns correctly, um, you might have life. There might give birth to a tiny coal. So think about this this ritual, the depth of it, the meaning of it, and uh, that you're sacrificing something. You're sacrificing your time and your effort and your energy. Like you're offering these as gifts and, uh, you know, to show fire that you're worthy, that you really are willing to give something. You're not just trying to take. You want to give something in return um, and cry out for that fire. You know, really want it. Feel it in your heart. And then when fire comes, always treat it respectfully. Um, I, I just always try to find ways to treat fire more respectfully. For instance, I kind of hate dousing fire with water now. I'll do it sometimes when I, I feel I have to, you know, there's a program going on and it's the camp rule. But for me, you know, just little things, like it feels more polite to spread out my firewood, you know, and just let it gently um, go out. You know, any way you can be respectful with the fire, to treat it like an elder, something you're grateful to have there. I think you'll have a lot better relationship with fire. You'll have a lot better luck with fire and uh, it just it becomes a doorway into a whole new world that that transcends fire. So, um, to sum up this podcast, or not to sum it up, but to uh, on our way out here, um, I'm going to share a message from Carrie from Middlebury, Vermont, and she says of Herbalism Unplugged Part One, wonderful, and I'm really glad you liked that episode. 
Carey, and I uh, hope you got to listen to part two, and I uh, hope you're still listening. So if you have any questions, comments, or um, anything to say, um, come visit our website. Um, our website is www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in burn bridges, bomb buildings, bayonet bureaucrats, and battle the burgessy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, and please review us. We uh, love having these reviews. So um, before we leave, we wanted to share, we were thinking of uh, a way we wanted to honor fire. And, you know, like we said in the beginning, when we honor fire, we're also honoring the sun. Um, so there's this Cherokee morning honoring song or sun honoring song that I learned a long time ago. And the Cherokee are a tribe that are very near to where we are now, the place that we've learned to call home. So I was told that people would go out by themselves and sing this song to greet each day as a thanksgiving, as a reminder that it's a new day. You can be anything you want to be. It's a chance to start over, um, a new birth. And they go out by themselves because you're born by yourself. You come into this world by yourself, just like you leave this world. Um, And as I sing, I like to think about these trees and all the plants and animals around me who have ancestors that go back, many of them way before my own ancestors were on this land, and how maybe they, their ancestors, heard these same words that were sung to them. So um, I'm so thankful for the Cherokee people for sharing this song, for sharing these words, because when I sing it, I feel like it brings me, um, I don't know, back to something special. It always improves my day. So, Teresa, do you have anything you want to say? Um, we're going to sing it to the four directions. Yeah. So traditionally, it's sung four times to the four directions, and by singing it to the four directions, you're giving thanks for all fires, all sun, all the the day in every direction. Um, so, Teresa, you want to sing it with me? All right. All right. Windayaho, windayaho, windaya. Wendaya, ho 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 ho, hey ho hey ho, yai yai yai. Wendaya ho, Wendaya ho, Wendaya, Wendaya, ho 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 ho, hey ho hey ho, yai yai yai. Wendaya ho. Wendayaho, Wendaya, Wendaya, ho 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 ho, hey ho, hey ho, yai yai yai. Wendayaho, Wendayaho, Wendaya, Wendaya, ho 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 ho, hey ho, hey ho, yai yai yo. Thank you, Cherokee people. Thanks for listening. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no 